discipline. The podcast where we dive deep into subjects that you may have never even considered. I'm your host, Jen Carter, lover of all things blue and facilitator of deep conversation. This episode, we're talking about juvenile justice. I'm going to start by apologizing for the delay in podcast uploading. I had the interview that you're going to hear recorded for a while, and I was trying to add an interview with someone behind bars who was sentenced uh, when he was a juvenile, and I still would like to talk to him, but that hasn't been able to happen, and I think one of the things to point out right now is how difficult and crazy it is to communicate when you are behind bars and how crazy it is right now with COVID-19 and what's going on with people behind bars. So the person I wanted to interview is up at the same facility where my partner is, but they've all been locked down for a while. Um, Before they were locked down, he was trying to get me added on to his phone call list and it wasn't working, and it's just been one thing after another, and I think that's something that people don't even consider, is that, you know, when somebody gets put behind bars, it's not just that they're there, it's that all these things become difficult, and all these things become monetized. So for this person to call me, he or I will have to pay for the call, He needs to get me added on, which they make very difficult to do. If I miss the call, it it kicks it out and it goes back to him that it was rejected and he has to try it all over again. Just all these things that, that you don't even think about as being part of being behind bars, you know? And so if you have a family that doesn't have the funds to even pay for the phone calls, Or if you have a family that, you know, just for whatever reason, maybe the education level they've uh, completed or, you know, what they're doing during the day just cannot navigate getting added on to even be able to receive a phone call. You know, there's so many little things that go into dehumanizing and making the experience of being behind bars difficult. We think that the sentence is just to be there and be separated, but there's all these other things that go into it that we don't even consider. So my hope is that once COVID settles down and um, they are not locked down anymore, which right now the facility is locked down due to COVID stuff, I haven't gotten to talk to my partner um, fully in a few days. He got to call once, but it wasn't a full phone call. And, um, you know, they're they're locked down and it's just all this absolute silliness that's not helpful towards COVID, but just completely inconsiderate and um, inconveniencing everyone. So my hope is that when all this settles down, I will get to do an interview with my friend Jimmy, uh, who was sentenced when he was a juvenile, 
and we can have that and I'll put it up as a bonus episode. But I didn't want to delay any longer and I wanted to get up this interview with these three amazing women who have different intersection points into juvenile justice in it. I think this is a very wonderful interview and I'm glad we all got to talk together because I think it was really interesting to have all the different points of view intersecting in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have another interview on this topic uh, and we'll get another episode up on a very different topic here very, very soon. So please enjoy this interview and, you know, if you listen, shoot me an email or post a comment and let me know what you think about all this stuff. Juvenile justice is a topic that is mostly unfamiliar to me, but completely appalling in my mind. And so I hope you will be equally affected as well. Not trying to upset you, but uh, these things are important and we need to know about them. And that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is to dive deep and to show you what's really going on with these things that you haven't even thought about. So please uh, enjoy this interview. of the blue and today we are talking about juvenile justice. I have amassed three of the most beautiful women that I know who do amazing work in this world for children and adults and so I want to just have everyone introduce themselves first. I'm going to go in reverse chronological order of how I know everyone because this is such a beautiful span of women in my life. I have one of my oldest friends here and some of my newest friends. And so it's, it's very nice beyond just the topic of what we're talking about. It's a nice bringing together of friends in my life. So Valerie, can you just introduce yourself first? Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Valerie Slater, and I'm the executive director of Rise for Youth. Rise stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments. I'm also a juvenile justice attorney, and our work is to amplify the voices of young people to completely reimagine juvenile justice and create instead a system that lifts up young people, helps young people and their families to truly find their footing, find their voice, and to realize and imagine a future without juvenile prisons. And so I'm excited about the work that I do. I'm excited about the young people I have the opportunity to work with and, the, and their families and just really look forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me, Jen. Thank you, Valerie. And I feel like the, the phrase juvenile prisons is already, oh my goodness, did you just say that? Because I don't think a lot of people even realize that that is a thing. And that's, that's what I want us to get into. So <laughs> but let's finish introducing everyone. So Jana, can you, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Jana White, and I am the director of the Virginia Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. And I actually started this journey of juvenile justice advocacy because of my cousin, Stephen. He was 16 at the time when he committed a crime that gave him a mandatory sentence of either um, the death penalty or life without parole. In his case, he got life without parole plus 56 years. 
He is actually just turned 40 today. Today is his birthday. And because of him, I realized that we were sentencing children to die in prison and at a very high rate. And so I started the, the coalition and this is my seventh year. I'm excited to say that Virginia finally has passed legislation that will be effective July 1st, where anyone who was a juvenile at the time of their crime, after serving 20 years, will be eligible for parole. So it's a new chapter for us. We're very excited. Um, I work with them and their families. We have about 175, 180 incarcerated members that I correspond with. I send out um, mailings. I do emails. I correspond with their families just to provide that kind of support for them because not everybody knows where to get information or how to work with the system and, and how, to, uh, how a bill becomes you know, law. It's, it's a very detailed and I don't know I hate to use word barbaric but you know it, it's, a, it's a very intense system yeah. and um, I'm very thankful to be here so I appreciate the invite. Yeah thank you and we're, we're gonna talk more about your bill and, and what all that means um, when we get into our discussion too so yes wonderful Jenna thank you and then Jennifer. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. So I am Jennifer Booker. I am currently um, the dean, which is like an assistant principal in training is what I call it because I'm not fully licensed yet. I've not taken my licensure test, but I am a dean at um, J.G. Henning Elementary School in Chesterfield County, the northern part of Chesterfield County, kind of right on the Richmond line. I have 21 years experience in education from being a teacher in a Title I school where I started my career to um, being a special education teacher, working with students with disabilities, then being back in a uh, general ed um, situation where I had students with disabilities and was out of my classroom. I've been a coordinator of special education. I feel like I've seen a lot of trends in education over the years, and I've seen a lot of turns being taken. There was times where we were really looking at discipline and suspensions and that sort of thing. Um, and I felt the tides kind of turning in the last few years. Is this really effective? Is it having the desired you know, effect that we want it to have? When we suspend children, we're actually keeping them out of school. They're becoming, you know, they come further behind and then they come back to school not knowing as much as when they left. What kind of practices can we do? Um, that kind of led to mine and Jen's conversation at dinner one night about the work that's being done here at Henning and the preventative work in allowing our students to really see Henning as a place that they feel safe and they thrive and their families feel welcome and what we're doing to increase that, that viewpoint and that experience every day. We're not where we want to be, but we're working towards um, where we will be someday. So I appreciate being here and being able to talk to you guys about this. Wonderful. Yes. I'm so happy that we're all here to talk yeah. together. So let's jump right in to um, the phrase I picked out when, when Valerie was talking. Mm -hmm. Juvenile prisons. There are children in prison. Explain this to us. So how does a, well, one, how, how young can a child be where they are taken away from their family and put into a prison and what, what has to happen for that to occur? So in Virginia, a child can be as young as 11 years old and find themselves in uh, a juvenile correctional center or a juvenile prison. Okay. Um, that is what the law mandates. Um, 
So, you know, uh, <clears throat> I always have to pause when I say that, right? Yeah. 11 years old, imagine that. Yeah, yeah, like take a breath, like that's heavy. Right. It is heavy. I, I look back to when I was 11 years old and, yeah. you know, I, I'm going to share a little story. I um, grew up military. I can remember when I was 11 years old, we were living in the Panama Canal Zone. And we lived in, in military housing, of course, but nevertheless, you know, and uh, in, in, in Panama, they have what's called the rainy season and the dry season. There is no cold. It's either yes. raining or it's hot. Yes. And I can remember as a rambunctious and curious 11 year old, I had taken a book of matches and I am in my backyard with all of this grass that's super duper dry and lighting a little patch on fire and, and stomping it out as quickly as possible. Right. And I lit a patch of grass and it, it, the wind blew a little bit and it got bigger than I could stomp out. And I freaked out and I ran in the house and I came out the front door and started playing with a group of friends so that I couldn't be associated with that fire and right. just was praying, please, someone see the smoke rise, someone yeah. smell it, someone something, right? Eventually someone did. So, you know, then everyone is, oh my gosh, what's going on? And so we all run around the house and there, and by now it's gotten, you know, a little larger. Someone calls the fire department and, you know, one of the kids just has the wherewithal to just turn the water hose on and put it out. Yeah. Imagine how that could have turned out. What if no one had seen it? What if that building had burned down? At 11 years old, I could have been facing some pretty significant charges. You know, so, so when we think about an 11-year-old, when we think about the mind of an 11-year-old, you know, in, in, in the law, there's this thing called mens rea. And that means that you have the intent. You have the mind to do something. Right. Nowhere in me did I want to burn down a building. Nowhere in me did I want to harm anyone. I was just being a silly kid playing with matches. Yeah. And, you know, that could have had some pretty significant, significant consequences. So when we're talking about an 11-year-old being able to go to prison, that is mind-blowing. And then, you know, and so let me bring it back to Virginia. And when we look at the majority of the young people that find themselves in such a place, we can pinpoint zip codes. We can pinpoint neighborhoods that those children are coming from. Yeah. And so when we talk about all of the factors that come into play that land a child in a, a, a situation that they potentially could end up in a prison, we've got to look at every factor, right? What's the community look like? What is, the, uh, what is the socioeconomic status of the family? Yeah. You know, what is this child being socialized to understand as the norm within their community? Yeah. How many things has this child seen or experienced that has normalized some behaviors that in other communities wouldn't even be considered? Right. And yet we're holding them to a standard of acting and reacting in ways that are standard, if you will, in other communities with no regard for all of those other factors that are impacting that child's life. 
Jennifer, you, you, you shared that you've worked in a Title I school and you've talked about, uh, you know, working with children with disabilities. You know, my, my, when I first came out of law, law school, I worked for the Disability Law Center of Virginia in their children's advocacy unit. And so fighting to keep kids in school yes. was the norm. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I, I, I know you understand exactly what I'm talking about and the fight that it is. And so thank you for your work. Absolutely. But, you know, we we have allowed a system to be created that basically criminalizes particular communities and the children from them. We have allowed a system to be created that says your life isn't as valuable. You don't potentially have as much to contribute. We will instead just put you in a cage. And if you make it out, that's okay. And if you don't, we have created the pathway into the adult system. So. <sighs> I'm glad that you brought that point up because, you know, I grew up on a horse farm in the middle of nowhere. Right. So if I had done what you said, playing with matches and lit something on fire and say I accidentally had burnt down our family's barn. What probably would have happened was my family would have got upset with me. I would have gotten in trouble and nothing probably would have happened, you know. But when you're living in a community that is more urban and you've got police in that community and something happens and there's this immediate presence of the police and then there's a completely different situation where it ends up becoming a criminal act where in a different situation it would be an act of raising your child and teaching your child that they made a mistake right and that's it's it's like you're remove the opportunity of growing up and learning where is that point at which you get to learn right from wrong right as soon as you do wrong you're put into prison then you don't get to learn right that's exactly so, right yeah so how do we, how do we change that <laughs> it's mm. interesting when you said what you said about the system because i have a really favorite administrator here in the county and a teacher and a college professor who has the quote that she always says, which is every system works exactly the way it's designed to work. And that what we want to get out is what we designed the system to do. And it really struck me when you were talking about that way that it's designed for juveniles is then to go into the way it's designed for adults. And that's kind of, you know, with some of the restorative practices and some of the things we've started doing in the county, that's really what we're looking at is if we continue to do what we've always done, we'll continue to get the results we've always gotten. So what we need to do is change the way we've designed the system to allow for different practices so that our students don't have the same outcomes that they've seen occurring, um, but they have a different outcome because the system has been changed for them so that they have more choice and more ability within that system to be productive um, members and productive students. Right. So that just struck me when you said that because I was that reminded me of Dr. White and she would love to hear you say that because it's true. So that's that's interesting and and brings us to so this system that we're talking about mm -hmm. is designed to basically put people into prison and I think sometimes we hear and if you've never heard this phrase for the folks who are listening there's this 
school to prison pipeline that we hear about. Right. And so maybe Valerie and Jennifer, maybe you all can talk about what does that mean? So I just, I think just this year realized that there are now police officers in schools in some places on a daily basis, just there. So, so how does that work and, and what does that mean? So I'm, I, I'm going to, on the elementary level in Chesterford County, we don't have any police officers. Right. Um, there was talk of having police officers in the schools at one point. There was a really heated debate within Chesterfield County, and the concern that was posed was the idea of it would be a safety if there were to be somebody who came into the schools. And to a huge extent, the parents and I was very proud to be a Chesterfield County resident. The parents fought it, and we, they were like, no, we do not want police officers who are armed in our schools. Like, the, when you look at the chance of a school shooting happening versus the ill effects of a officer with a loaded gun being in your school, it was just, you know, there was, there was a lot of discussion about that was not the way to go. We do have resource officers within the elementary level, and I don't, I don't know exactly how the roles are for middle and high, and I don't want to say things that aren't true or are true. And, and Valerie and Jen, Jana, you may know better than I do. On an elementary level, we do have resource officers. The job of those resource officers, they are safety officers. Many of them have never been police officers in any way. They are safety officers who take safety courses and they come and they teach safety courses to our students. So a lot of what they do is literally like how to call 911, if something happens, and that's over the entire county, safety about wearing seatbelts, some drowning safety that they do normally in about this time of year when the kids are headed out to the pools. As they get older, there might be discussion of drug abuse and keeping yourself safe like in within your neighborhood. But there's no that I'm aware of in Chesterfield County at least, there are no police within the school systems. So do, do you all know, is that the case for Richmond and then I don't know if anybody knows, is there, uh, on a national level, there are places where they do have actual police officers in certain schools. Is that correct? Yes. yes. And I'll Go explain ahead. where I am and, and how that is down here because it is very different down here. So if you want to go ahead, Valerie, or if you want me to... No, please go ahead, Gina. Okay, so I actually live in Sarasota, Florida. So I... In our county, we have the city that I live in within the county. We actually have armed police officers at all of the schools. When you go to eat lunch with your second grader, as I do, there is an armed police officer in the cafeteria at all times. Yeah. They actually build houses on the school campuses for the officers to live in. So the high school has a little house off to the left of the school. The elementary school has a house off to the back by the playground, the middle school, et cetera. Every school that I have been to has an actual house where the officer lives. So he's there living there with his family. And at all times that there are armed Oh no, Dana, we lost your audio. Oh, and she can't hear us, I don't think. Uh-oh. Dana, we lost your audio. 
Well, while she figures oh, that wait, out, there I'm she is. Okay, block. sorry. There you go. I'm no sorry. worries. <laughs> I don't even know what you heard, so I don't know. <laughs> you were talking about the the that they had the houses on the properties. Yes. Yeah. So basically, all the schools have police officers in at all grade levels, and they have built homes for them. Whoever's assigned to the school will live in that house. Wow. Wow. Here in Virginia, we definitely do have school resource officers in schools. We have uh, both. Some schools have only a school security officer, and that is an employee of the school. Mm -hmm. And some schools have both a school security officer and a school resource officer. So that's the employee of the school and the employee of the local police department. Mm -hmm. Richmond Public School has um, a combination of all of the above. Henrico County has a combination of all of the above. The majority of the counties in Virginia, the, the cities and counties in Virginia, have have some combination of the two. I was just looking, I was going to look it up to determine exactly how many. I just wasn't quick enough. But yeah, there are several schools that, like I said, have absolutely the school resource and the school security officer. But you asked another question. You asked, what is a school to prison pipeline? And I'd like to answer that question if I may. So uh, the school to prison pipeline, it is a systematic uh, or a system of policies and procedures and the application of those policies and procedures that either sends kids into contact with the justice system or it pushes them out of school which increases the likelihood that they will come into contact with the, uh, the justice system. And we have learned that a single suspension exponentially increases a young person's likelihood of being involved with the justice system, a single suspension. And so, you know, you, Jennifer, you were talking a little bit ago, you know, we can't, we can't keep putting kids out of school, you know, suspensions don't work. And you're absolutely right, you know? And so there, there's something that happens inside of a child's mind when they are removed from that learning environment. You also shared they fall behind and then when they come back, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to catch up quickly because that's just who they are, but you aren't putting out the smart kids. That's, that's not who you're suspending. And I'm not calling any child unsmart. What I'm saying is when that child comes back, they're either going to pretend they know what's going on and fall further behind because they're just not voicing where they really are and how they're struggling and or they're going to act up and act out so that they're not embarrassed yeah. that they yeah. have fallen behind exactly. but either one of those scenarios is going to lead to further suspensions further trouble further falling behind and the further likelihood that that child is again going to end up in trouble right so you know and then when we have children that aren't in school we have to recognize that school is a kid's job yeah. everyone's got a job everyone's got a part to play for children School is the work for, for really small children. Play is their work. Exactly. Yeah. You're so right. I like so, your play is the work because we uh, emphasize that as well. It's very important. And mm -hmm. what we tried to do is we tried to really be, think about it from a preventative standpoint. 
and say, you know, really look at our discipline data and look at where are our problems arising? When is class becoming disruptive? How is it becoming disrupted? What can we put in place ahead of time to keep those disruptions? And very simply put, you know, expectations, you were talking about expectations of neighborhoods and what's normal in one neighborhood might not be normal in another neighborhood. And Henning is a very diverse school. We are 44% black, we are 30% Hispanic, we are 17% white, and the rest is a little bit of everything. I mean, we're just very, and we have some really high socioeconomic you know, um, factors at our school, and we have some students who are really living in some extreme poverty. And so one thing that we've really discovered is that we really have to teach kids what the expectations are here at Henning, because they might not be what mom expects, they might not be what dad expects, they might not be what grandma expects. And so you really have to go through this whole, you know, we call it PBIS, it's positive behavior intervention systems. And we really go through that and we teach our students from day one in pre-K or kindergarten, depending on when they come to us, what we expect here at Henning and what we will do as our job as teachers for them and what we expect them to do as their job of, as students. But the key with that is we don't just expect them to be told it, to learn it and to do it immediately. We expect there to be mistakes and they're allowed to make mistakes and they're allowed to keep trying and they're allowed to have conversations about those mistakes without any kind of punishment. Um, there's a lot of teaching, reteaching, um, kind of modeling from ourselves, modeling of that behavior. Um, we do a lot of social emotional learning, um, spend a good portion of our day. Every day in our school, the first 40 minutes of our day is devoted to social emotional learning. Our kids come in, they get breakfast, we have morning meeting, we have announcements. Um, it's more than just a morning meeting. We spend time really doing the work of building a community because that looks very different in kindergarten than it does when our kids get to like fifth grade. Mm -hmm. um, when we get to fifth grade, some of those larger issues are coming up and some of the time we spend is really serious deep time. Um, I think about what that time would be like right now if we were in school because it would be very different. Um, and I, I hate that we have students who are out there not getting that time with their teachers and their classmates to really explore what is going on in the world. And it worries me. But that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a good example of kind of how we have set things up to start to be preventative so that problems are not occurring even before the day begins. And if I can just add one last piece to that, because, you know, I, I thank you so much, Jennifer, for all of the work that you're doing to make sure that children are, number one, learning the expectations within the school. And Rise for Youth, we're doing the work to go into community yes. and help change what's happening at the community level, right? making sure that the resources that the Department of Juvenile Justice and others want to spend to rehabilitate children that have found themselves in trouble, spend every one of those dollars in the communities where these children are coming from. Yes. When we recognize that all of those factors are coming to play and that all of these trauma triggers are happening for children in their communities, we've got to get rid of them, get rid of the trauma causers, right? If there is a lack of, if we're living in a food desert, bring healthy food in. Mm -hmm. Don't bring things that are high in sugar and every dye you can imagine and, you know, so negative in its nutritional content that it is literally causing a child to have even more behaviors. I mean, now we even understand that what we eat can contribute to how we, we act and behave. If we recognize that a child isn't getting enough sleep or is worried because their community is a war zone, then we need to do the work of making sure that that neighborhood dynamic changes. 
And I would even go so far as to say that all of the, the images that children are seeing, whether they come in through I, I say all of the, the stimuli that a child receives, whether it be what they have heard, whether it is what they have seen, that we need to make sure that there are positive images and not negative ones. I'm not going to call out any one kind. I'm just going to say positive images can result in positive behaviors. Continue influx of negative images can also yield an output. I'll leave it there. Absolutely. So many good nuggets <laughs> from all of you. I want to come back real quick to something Jennifer said. So Jennifer is at a school in which, and, and you're largely the person doing this as well as, as your principal, yeah. you are forward thinking and you're doing positive good things and, and you are really, really thinking about this stuff and trying to prevent what we're talking about with juvenile justice from happening. And one of the things that you said was we lay the expectations for the kids and we know that they're going to make mistakes. That's right. And I think what's, what's going on with this children getting into prison is that we've, we've lost the ability to allow children to make mistakes, Mm -hmm. to allow them to learn. And so in a place where you've got a police officer right there, when the child makes a mistake, instead of it being a mistake and a learning opportunity, then it's a mistake and a punishment. Right. And so yeah. I think that's something that, that really needs to change that, you know, having the, the punishment right there rather than a, you know, why did you do that? What can we learn? How can we fix it? And then going to, to Valerie's um, ideas of like, we need to fix this in the level of like, why did that, why did the mistake happen in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. So how many of us got into a fight at school before? Well, I was just sitting here thinking about fights because that is something, you know, that I, I think about, I had two fifth grade boys. I was actually just sitting here thinking about my fifth grade boy fight and how I had these two boys who had this fight on the playground. Right. So I brought him in my office. I sat him down with the pug of corn and I'm like, all right, let's talk. Like what happened? So they start talking and it's this whole really, truly just a huge misunderstanding of like one thought, one thing had happened, nothing could happen. And so we get done and I'm like, okay, so, and then, you know, I'm like, so what should we do? And they're like, well, I'm really sorry, dude. Like, I didn't mean, you know, and he's like, I know, man, I didn't either. And they end up on their own, like shaking hands and saying they're sorry, you know? And I was like, okay. And I was like, okay, let's go back to class. And I'm getting ready to walk them. And they're like, wait, what, where are you going to call our moms? And I was like, do I need to call your mom? Like, do you need to have a punishment? Because you just said it was a misunderstanding. You just talked to each other. You just on your own shook hands. Why do I need to do something else with this? Is it going to happen again? And they're like, no, well, okay. So see that it doesn't happen again. But then Valerie, I had just had that thought of what if the police officer were here at, at my school? Like then exactly. what would have happened? Right? That's like exactly right. Would that, exactly power, right. would that power be taken away from me? And would it become... Yes. Yeah, would it become a police officer? So it's not something I've considered because I've never worked, you know, in a school that had that police presence because even the resource officers that I am talking about are only here for the lessons they provide. They're not Mm -hmm. even here. Like, and here I don't see, you know, I don't see police on a daily basis ever. Mm -hmm. They're here Mm -hmm. to come do a few lessons and then they leave, you know. And I've unfortunately had clients who are facing disorderly conduct, assault, by mob, meaning one child and two two kids jumped on one kid. 
or one, two kids were fighting and a couple of other kids jumped in. That's assault by mob. And, th- and, and those are middle school kids that I'm talking about. Right, right. I mean, 11 so, years old is here. We have fifth graders who are 11. Like mm-hmm. when you brought up that 11, I was like, that's my fifth grade. That's my fifth grade boys who, you know, got yes. into the shoving match on the playground. And Over see, in, in another school, in another school, very quickly, those two young men would be before a court services unit hoping for a diversion hoping for a diversion. And in Virginia, you're only allowed one diversion. So let's say those two young men, they get in trouble and they have that pushing match and someone decides, well, actually, you know, that's assault, assault and battery because there was physical contact. And so that gets diverted. And then let's say they didn't resolve it. It wasn't fully squashed and they do get into it again. Right. All of a sudden diversion is off the table. So, those, say those two boys end up going into a prison situation and they're charged with these things. So, at what point, at what point does it become a situation where Jana's aspect comes in where a child, someone who's a child, ends up in prison as an adult? So, I think at least for me, I always thought if a child got in trouble for something, they might have a juvenile punishment and then, and then that was done when they were 18. But that's not the case. So not always, not always. How, how, does, how does that work? So first of all, there is a certain category of crimes where a young person age 14 and older can be charged as an adult. Just this past General Assembly session, we did pass legislation that says, you know, uh, before a child's 16th birthday, if they are charged with a crime that could have been a felony if committed by an adult, and again, a certain class of crimes, that that, ch- that, that child can be charged as an adult, but the prosecutor must review that child's social history. The judge must also review that, that child's social history. And there are other factors that must be considered before that child can be considered for transfer to a circuit court. And then, you know, from 16 and for 16 and 17 year olds, unfortunately, there are, there are classifications of crimes where they can be just tried as an adult without without having that, that, that extra review. But you know, what's really disturbing about that, imagine a 14 year old. And again, when we look at that perfect storm of circumstances that can exist in a child's life, you know, where they really are just acting out of what is normal in their own communities, but it fits within that, those classifications of crime, such as larceny, grand larceny and, and those kinds of things, this child is stealing. Let's say that this child goes into a grocery store or some other store and, and, and let's say that they even have a firearm. Please do not mistake what I'm saying as if I am in agreement or I think that it is okay. But children that have been socialized and, and it has been normalized for them, that that's just how we get things. And then we turn around and we say to them, you know, you are just, what you have done, it's so heinous. And you are one that we must prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. And now potentially we have a 14-year-old that is going to be considered an adult 
no matter what for the rest of their juvenile life for the for the rest of their youthful years you know and and imagine that this child who does find himself in this particular circumstance and i have known children who have done things because of circumstances surrounding their life and i'm not saying that every again at no point am I ever saying it's okay, but I'm saying that there are some circumstances and some situations that children find themselves in. And there are oftentimes adults who are coercing and forcing kids to do things. I've had a young man share with me, they said they were gonna hurt my family. And so here is this child now who is forever an adult and who was doing something only because they were afraid for their family. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not one who is on board with the way we treat children as it relates even to some of the mistakes that they made. I, I, I just, I can't get on board with it. I cannot. Yeah. And so we're talking about kids who are making mistakes like robbing, taking something, not children that are like murdering someone, right? Like this isn't like they've killed someone and they're going to prison for life. This is like they've, take, they've, they've stolen food or they've stolen a phone or something like that and they can be put into prison for a very, very long time, right? Or even they stole a car. Let's think about that, you know? I mean, there are kids in upper middle class neighborhoods that take cars and joyride in them. It, right. it happens. Yeah. But for some reason, you get the wrong zip code and you get the wrong color skin. When you did it, you're a horrible individual, according to the law. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about things that every kid doesn't do. These are things that every child does because it's a part of childhood. Yeah. And, and I mean. <sighs> yeah. So, Jana, tell us a little bit more about your cousin. So, he was 16 when he was arrested and charged with his crime. And now he's 40. And so he's spent his entire life behind bars. And how, how, how does that play out? I mean, you know, how, how, is it, how has he been able to, to grow up? And like, what, what has it been like? Well, in his childhood, and you, you know, Valerie and Jennifer are talking about childhood and adapting to environments and, you know, one of the biggest things is in the work that we do, we're trying to get others to see the differences between children and adults. Because it's not just, you know, growth and maturity, it's your adolescent brain, the way the science studies are. And in his situation, he kind of came from a, a rougher area and where he lived. By the fifth grade, he failed. He, his parents had started to go their separate ways. So he literally kind of got lost in transition there. Now you've got a mom that's working two jobs, trying to make ends meet. He's on his own. He didn't even have to get up to go to school. He's like, why, why, why should I bother? My friends want to go hang out and ride bikes. Fifth grade, he's failing. Sixth grade, he's failing. You know, they send him off to do a, a special catch up, you know, school. It, it just literally took the wrong path. And he started as he got older, you know, that wrong group 
it's, it's really in this day and age, it's crazy to me to see how our youth have access to drugs, to, to guns, things, you know, like we're talking about their, their environment and this is their norm. And it's just, our children are just not allowed to be kids anymore. The way that society is, the way that, that our neighborhoods are, our communities are, they're just not even allowed to be kids anymore. And, you know, you've got kids that are like, just, I don't even know how to explain it, but I mean, just subject it to way too much. So in Steven's case, he committed a crime at the age of 16. Now, again, his crime automatically put him in the, ca the category because it became capital murder, okay? So at that time, it was either the death sentence or like I said, life without parole. The judge said, there's no way I'm sentencing you to death. I, I know you didn't mean to do it. He's on record saying this. So mandatory sentencing, which is another thing we need to get away from. Um, but you know, we, in the advocacy work that I do, um, our youngest members, I have a couple of them, they were 14. So they were at that very young age of being just babies. My son just turned 13. And I mean, it's just, it breaks my heart to think of him, you know, hanging out with friends, riding their bikes, doing whatever, going down to 7-Eleven. I don't know what's in their friend's backpacks. He doesn't know what's in their friend's backpack. They're going in the store. They're like, you know what? I'm going to start grabbing. Let's get all this candy. Because what are they going to steal? Candy, food, something transpires. All of a sudden, the friend pulls a gun on someone. Well, guess what? He's going away for the same, the crime, the same sentence. I have members in my coalition that weren't even there at the time of the crime. They rode with their friends Friday night. Okay, going to buy drugs, going to buy marijuana. Not the best thing to be doing, okay? All of a sudden, the friend is inside trying to make the deal and something goes bad. Somebody loses their life. Now the person that's sitting in the car, again, you're hanging out with your buddies. You don't know what's going on. Five of you in the car, y'all go, let's go. Who didn't go joyriding? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's just, it's been a, it's been crazy to me to learn of the stories. And, you know, we talk about their, their, their life prior to the crime, mitigating circumstances. What were they subjected to? What was their life like? How did they get to this point where they thought it was okay to even have a gun? Why did they have a gun? How did you get a gun? You know, and it, it's just so much that leads up to that and, and to that point. And then for the United States to be sentencing children to die in 2020, 2020, it's crazy. They are literally sending them off to these adult Stephen went straight to an adult supermax prison he, by the time he was sent off he was 17. i cannot even imagine my daughter's 18. 
for her to be in an adult supermax prison and I can't even go see her. And if I do go see her, I have to be behind glass. I can't even hug her, hold her, nothing. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So that's where I kind of fit in. I have been advocating, you know, for our members, trying to be their voice. I work with national organizations and, you know, go to convenings and I try to network with anybody and everybody just spread awareness because people, a lot of people like me had no clue because it does, if it's not affecting you, it's not affecting you. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know about it, you know, and it's it's just it's pretty crazy what we do here. It is crazy. I, I, you you pointed out my work is and, and just kind of be. Oh, I think we're losing her again. We are losing her again, Jen. I also had a beep at the door real quick. I'm gonna pause for just. Fine. I was just gonna say, you know, Jenna mentioned how people that are there can be charged with a crime and they didn't do it. They're just there. That's right at the site and and i just recently have learned that and yeah accessory yeah me and, and they get charged with the same crime that's exactly right that's exactly right and not knowing what they were going to do is not an excuse that's that's not a um, crazy defense it's not it's not and what's you know you you jana you talked about your your uh your cousins at 17 he went straight into supermax so let me just explain there are three types of sentences that a young person can get they can get a determinate sentence let's start with indeterminate sentence that means that they are definitely going to the department of juvenile justice and the department of juvenile justice has complete authority to determine when that young person has satisfied their requirements of their treatment plan and can be released and then there's what's called a determinate sentence that means the judge has set the, the, the punishment for this young person or the sentence for this young person and only the judge is able to change that sentence and so it's it and that's done through what's called a serious offender review hearing and then there's what's called a blended sentence that means that you owe time to the department of juvenile justice and you owe time to the department of corrections so and then again it's only the judge who has any discretion and you will go for a serious offender review hearing before you are transferred to DOC to determine whether or not you will have to make that transfer. And I'm sorry, there's four, because then of course there's the young person who is sentenced straight to DOC, which is what unfortunately your cousin experienced. And you know, I, I, there have been two serious offender review hearings that have happened very, very recently, both of which I attempted to help just get information and ways to help support to make sure that this young person had the greatest opportunity to come home. And in one of them, this young man, his attorney had not prepared him and he received eight years of DOC time. And so here is this young man who's 20 years old, about to turn 21, because that's when that last serious offender review hearing happens is at the 20 year mark before you turn 21. And this young man received eight more years and he collapsed in the courtroom crying and wailing 
just, you know, trying to understand what is happening in my life right now, you know, and unfortunately there was another one that happened even more recently. And, you know, the way we treat children in this country, it blows my mind, you know, that we truly, you know, Jana, you mentioned brain science. It's like, they really are kids doing dumb things. There are kids who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They are kids that have been conditioned to, 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 to be numb to certain things. You know, I've got young people that I work with who have watched someone die. I've got young people that I work with that have themselves been shot. I have young people that I work with that I work with that have been running for their lives and trying to figure out how do I protect myself when I know that people are shooting at me. These are the kids that I work with. And yet we're telling these kids, we need you to act in this particular way because this is what we as a society has deemed appropriate. When is it that we as a society is going, when are we going to give them an appropriate environment to learn how to exhibit those behaviors? When are we going to take that responsibility on? I think about the dollars you were talking about for communities. And I think about like quality preschool. And if those kids had somewhere quality to be during the day, so mom could work and not have two jobs, as Jana was saying. And if we could provide those opportunities with some of the dollars we spend in the prison system. Yeah. $258,000 a year per child. Child, I read that. I read that coming on here. I was really yes. a little bit interested in that piece, and I couldn't believe that figure. Wait, yeah. say that again, Valerie. What is that? $258,000 a year. When a child is in juvenile prison, when they are in Bonaire, it's $258,000 a year. That is, by the way, 100,000 times as much as they, or yes. sorry, that yes, a hundred thousand yes, times. Yes, hundred thousand. Yeah, two hundred thousand. Like, wait a minute, two hundred. Thank you. Two hundred thousand yeah. times more because that's usually yeah. the stat that we cite. So you know, um, it costs around thirty, thirty, thirty-two thousand dollars a year to house an adult person in prison in Virginia, mm-hmm. and it's around, at least by my calculations, Jennifer, eleven thousand dollars a year for a kid to be in school. Yeah. So yeah. two hundred if it. Oh, wow. What could we do in a community with that much money? Exactly. exactly. Times how many kids come out of that particular community? Because I mean, again, we can drill right down to zip codes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think this this leads us well into I think what what we should close with, and maybe we can you can all chime in with with your own little piece of it. So, I hope that people listening. I hope this is. I hope this is appalling because that's that's kind of the point is like what are we doing to our children be appalled like this is not right so if you are appalled and and disturbed as we all are what can we do what are the steps that we can do as human beings as citizens of this nation this world what can we do to help fix this I would say, first of all, that we need to make sure that we are supporting the organizations that are doing this work. Go to the Virginia uh, Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Youth and make sure that you are donating to not just get these young people out, but change the very idea that this is what we, 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 what we would do to the children that find themselves with the greatest needs, right? Because we're talking now about those kids that are at the furthest end of the spectrum. Oh, wait. 
They've committed those really heinous crimes. We need to lock them up in adult prison systems. We need to make sure that we are funding the organization that is saying, you know what? Even a child on their absolute worst day is worth a second chance, is worth an opportunity to still give back to community and is still the child at the end of the day. I also invite you to please go to Rise for You, support our work. We're trying to change what it looks like even for the kids when they, are, when they still belong to the Department of Juvenile Justice. We are pushing for healthy community secure care. A facility shouldn't be any larger than 30 beds and it needs to be located right in the middle of the community where those kids are coming from. It needs to be surrounded by every other support service necessary to help that child and that family find their way back from this place where they find themselves now in trouble. It needs to be everything around that child in that particular space. It needs to all be sourced and resourced by the community that it's in. We need to turn every dollar. We can't keep pouring money into systems. We need to pour them into families and into communities. And so uh, support that legislation. We're going to be pushing that legislation, and you've, you've heard it here first. We are also going to be pushing to move the Department of Juvenile Justice out from under public safety and put it into public health. We have a public health crisis with children that find themselves in trouble, not public safety. That's my two cents. Jen, do you want to add anything? No, I think Valerie really hit it. I mean, 100%. I mean, one of the things I always try to stress to people when they're like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Go out in your community. See what's going on with the kids in your community. Check for volunteer opportunities with boys and girls, with YMCA, with the schools, anything. Be a part of your community and find out what's happening to the kids in your community because honestly, you probably will be surprised. Mm -hmm. And the only piece I'll add to what you have said is I always encourage families and parents to educate themselves, much like you just said, but also get to know your neighbors who don't live right by you. There is a lot of inequity within counties and within different parts of counties, and people are very often shocked by what they see, um, the inequity of buildings. Title I schools are Title I because we are using Title I money to try to make up for those, um, some of those inequities. But even just kind of um, the buildings, we work really hard to make our building inviting to our students, but we still, we, you know, we're very overcrowded here. And it's, it, there are things that necessarily wouldn't happen in other parts you know, of the county. So it's important to educate yourself and to meet people who are different than you and to know what their experiences are. I think that's probably more important right now than it ever has been before. So I'll close on that. Thank you all. I, I wanna close by saying, and Valerie hit on it a little bit, get involved in the legislation, talk to your representatives, your delegates and your senators on a state level, as well as a national level, but on a state level, and tell them that these things should not be happening. Tell them that, that reforming juvenile justice is important to you and ask them what they're doing to support the, the legislation that organizations like Rise for Youth and the Virginia Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Youth are pushing forward because that's really how the change is going to happen. 
and make sure that you're voting for people who, who think that these are important changes that need to happen. Yeah. So thank you all so much for this discussion. And I think, you know, we could keep talking for a while because it's a, it's a, it's a big rabbit hole of, of just for me. Yeah. Just absolutely like what in the world, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it up for now. And, and thank you all so much for being here and, yeah, it's been wonderful having all of you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So for me, that was a really heavy episode. And as odd as it sounds, I hope it was heavy for you too. The fact that we are putting children in prison and sentencing children to spend their lives in prison is so incredibly awful. So as I said in the episode, get in touch with your legislators on a state level, on a national level, on a local level, and also, as uh, Valerie said, donate to these organizations. If you have questions, reach out to me. You can also reach out to Valerie, Jenna, and Jennifer. I'll put contact information in our show notes. And yeah, let me know what you thought of all this. As I said, this juvenile justice thing was news to me about a year ago and I just cannot believe what we're doing to our children in this country I can't believe what we're doing to our adults in this country either but you know that's that's a topic for another day but please uh you know if you are affected reach out let me know let me know what you're doing to help Uh, if you don't know how to help ask ask me ask one of these amazing women and uh let's change this because once you learn about things, you've got to do something about it. So, all right. We'll have a new episode soon. I promise it's going to be something a little bit lighter, and I hope it will be up a little bit quicker than this one was. Again, I apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I was trying to add something from one of our friends behind bars, and it just wasn't happening. So, in any case, stay tuned for the next episode of the blue.